Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Is it time for a new global politics of technology? If democratic countries cannot agree on a framework for the digital world, the rules could be set in ways that undermine human freedom. You're listening to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show... The news about potential COVID-19 vaccines just keeps getting better. Countries are certainly expecting to be able to vaccinate tens of millions of people before the end of the year. And is there really phosphine on Venus? No discovery of that magnitude should be the preserve of just one scientific paper. You need thousands of researchers all to spiral in on this answer. But first, the creators of the internet envisaged a single global network free of the baggage of the offline world, from international politics to commercial rivalries. Boy, did they miss the mark. Today, we live ever more in the virtual realm, accelerated by the pandemic. But that world is fragmenting. Fault lines have appeared over hardware and software, who makes it and who profits, over how to regulate the tech giants, how to share and store data. The conflict is not just between America and China, but Europe too. And it throws a spotlight on other countries. Do they have to choose sides? At stake are the benefits of a seamless network, as well as values like privacy, security, and human freedom. Now there are calls for a new grand bargain on technology to resolve the conflicts tearing the digital world apart. You've, of course, heard about the tech cold war between China and and the U.S., especially America, trying to keep Huawei gear out of mobile networks in Western countries. But there's lots of other stuff happening. Ludwig Ziegler is our U.S. technology editor. There's data flows. Under what circumstances is data allowed, for example, to cross the Atlantic to be used by Facebook and Google? Where should it be localized? There's lots of laws now around the world where governments say certain data, personal data mostly, cannot leave the country, have to be processed in the country. Countries are blocking websites. So the content question is a flashpoint. There is increasingly antitrust. So how do you deal with companies like Facebook or Google, which have a dominant position in in their respective markets? And there's the speech issue. I mean, so how do you deal with hate speech, disinformation? Those are all issues that individual countries can try to solve them. But in the end, you have to solve them collectively. Now, you've mentioned this tech cold war between America and China. Where is Europe in all of this? In a way, the conflict between the EU and the U.S. is more important. I mean, the way I see it is that we're already in a world where you can see this kind of decoupling is happening. It's happening in hardware manufacturing. It's starting to happen in in, in semiconductor manufacturing. 
the US going after TikTok, so it's happening in software and so on and so forth. But if that's happening, the question is, so, so what do democratic countries do? They need to band together. And if they can't band together, then, then China is the stronger player here. And so what's important is that the US and the EU come to terms. And, and one very important thing is the data flow. So what has happened a few months back is that the ECJ, kind of the, the highest court in the EU, has decided that, that an agreement between the US and the EU called Privacy Shield is no longer valid because it doesn't fulfill the requirements of, of European privacy law. And so in a few weeks, data flows from Europe to the US will be blocked or will be illegal. What's really important here is that the US and the EU agree on a certain number of rules, and then you can go from there and, and other countries can join this kind of transatlantic digital alliance. So if there is a Europe in between America and China in terms of the tech Cold War, where will other countries be? Will they have to align with one of the other major powers as happened during the Cold War itself? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly one one possible scenario is that, that you kind of have these free big fortresses and, and kind of other countries have to agree to those rules and you have these digital trading blocks. That said, it's, it's a bit more complicated because you have players like Russia or Japan or in particular India. India, of course, is, is a big country and they want to also set their rules. They also see themselves as kind of the anchor of, of a, a digital sphere for the global south. The bad outcome would be here to have trading blocks, three or four, depending kind of how, how you define them, and that there's not much going on between those two, that perhaps even they have different technical standards. So if you have a kind of a European 6G phone, you can't use it in China or you can't use it even in the US. So if there is going to be a tech grand bargain, how would a new institution that gets created out of it govern technology in practice? There's a number of proposals out there in the recent weeks have been released. One is, for for example, the, the Council on Foreign Relations in the U.S. They want to create a digital trade zone. It's basically countries join it. They have to comply with certain rules in order to digital trade with each other. And only countries that agree to that can join. And the hope is that China will, because of economic interests, will agree to these rules too. There is another one, uh, another think tank, the Center for a New American Security, has proposed a tech alliance, which is a bit like the G7 a bit bigger, a bit more formalized, uh, but in the end, it's it's the idea that that countries get together regularly. There are certain kind of rules to make decisions. One country, one vote, and those things, and they then agree on stuff like supply chain security. But let me understand this better, because why would we need a tech grand bargain if we have, for example, the OECD already doing digital taxation? We have the International Telecommunications Union already doing telecom standards. Why would we want to centralize these conversations rather than benefit from the decentralized conversations that are already happening in other forums? Yes, of course, we we should use those existing organizations like the OECD or perhaps even the WTO, even though it's it's a bit dysfunctional these days. But I mean, these organizations, they are decades old. They're built to solve certain problems and they're not necessarily built for this new world, for the world of tech, of cloud computing, of artificial intelligence. And it needs, I think it needs a certain institutional skills to solve those problems. It's very complex questions. And so I think at some level, you need a specialized organization for these tech issues. Isn't there a risk that the tech grand bargain actually antagonizes China and exacerbates tensions that otherwise could be smoothed over? That's a big debate in foreign policy circles is to what extent this, if there is an organization, the organization of digital democracies, whether that should be exclusionary, created against China, or whether it should be a thing where perhaps China can join if, if it chooses to. And I think the latter is, is the best solution. I mean, you, it's this dilemma. You want Western countries kind of to band together to develop 
a robust alternative to what China wants to do with, with the digital tool, creating this, this surveillance state. But you also don't want to make this decoupling, the bifurcation, the tech cold war worse. So it's, it's going to be a balancing act. And I suppose my final question is, what does the world look like if it fails to create this tech grand bargain where the democracies rally together? What's the negative implication if we fail to achieve that? That is on two levels, economically and politically. If you have a very fragmented digital world, it's going to be a poor world. Innovation will slow down. Data can't be used or value extracted from data as much as would be possible. This is kind of digital protectionism or having a digitally fragmented world. The, the other one, I think, which is more important, is a political one. If the democratic countries don't band together, the danger will be that China may set standards in the digital world, and those standards will come with values attached, and the values won't be democratic values. Technology is a double-edged sword. You can use it to improve the lives of people, to improve democracy, but you can do the other way and use it as a tool to create a surveillance state. So the West has to create a credible alternative to that. And the best chance of doing that is if they band together and agree on a certain number of rules in the hope that that becomes the standard. Ludwig, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read Ludwig's briefing proposing a grand bargain for the technosphere in full in The Economist this week. And, of course, there's a special introductory offer for our beloved Babbage listeners. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes for the episode. Next up... Waiting for a vaccine against COVID-19 to arrive has been a bit like waiting for a bus. You wait, anxiously checking your watch. Nothing happens for a year. And then two come along at once. In just the past week, two vaccine trials have shown success. Pfizer and BioNTech on November 9th, followed by Moderna on November 16th. Both teams report about 95% effectiveness without serious side effects, including in older people. But there are important differences between the two. Both vaccines are highly effective, which is wonderful to have. But one of the most important differences that we will see between the two is the Moderna vaccine is much more stable. Natasha Loder is our health policy editor. It can be kept in an ordinary refrigerator between 2 to 8 degrees C for much longer. And this is going to make it less costly to distribute around the world. So it's really, it's really good to have. And what do we know about how Moderna works? Both vaccines have taken a bit of genetic material, codes for the spike protein on the outside of COVID-19. And essentially, they're just introducing this DNA, actually in the form of RNA, which is a closely related molecule. They're introducing it into the human body. Once you've introduced that genetic material into the body, the body then manufactures that protein, that spike protein of the virus, and just that bit of the virus. And then the body recognises it as something foreign and says, oh, hang on, what's going on here? And mounts an immune response. And so both vaccines are doing pretty much the same thing. So what will these vaccines cost? The firms themselves are a little bit um, cagey about talking about costs. But from what we can guess, the Moderna vaccines, the most expensive, will probably come in about 80 US dollars for a couple of doses. The Pfizer vaccine might be a bit cheaper at about $40 per 
two doses. But the Astra vaccine, the one from Oxford University, is the one everyone's waiting for because it's going to be cheap, probably more like about between six to eight dollars for two doses. So there's still a lot of hope that this vaccine will prove to be just as effective as the others. Can we expect a third announcement soon? Well, like all these trials, we have to wait for something called accrual. And um, what that means is that, you know, you have to see a certain number of events of infection before you can do the calculation as to whether or not the vaccine works. So we don't really know. But Astra has said consistently um, in the last couple of months, we'll get results before the end of the year. They're not being as specific about when exactly that is. Uh, I my feeling if I had a hunch I would say it could happen any time in the coming weeks but the truth is that nobody really knows. Natasha having a vaccine is only part of the issue the other part is the actual rollout what is expected there? Well this is one of these questions that is hard to answer. We know that the rollout of vaccine to the world is going to be the sort of you know largest vaccine rollout in history. There are going to be huge logistical challenges, both in scaling up and distribution. In terms of the next couple of months, these things will have to go relatively slowly. What we can expect in the next few months is for these firms to apply to regulators and say, hey, we've got a vaccine. We haven't quite finished our trials. We've got a bit of data. Would you allow us to use this vaccine under an emergency basis? They've got to weigh up the risk versus the benefit. So the benefit, of course, we all know, the benefit is it could be life-saving. The risks are that we have relatively little long-term data on the vaccine. There may be side effects that we haven't seen. Maybe we need to do trials in larger numbers of people. I think probably what's going to happen is that regulators are going to take a pragmatic view and they'll say, look, we're not going to recommend that these vaccines are used in everyone. We're going to say that in really high risk groups, you can have the vaccine if you want it, but you will be followed very closely and carefully for sort of side effects. So that's kind of what I imagine. And then as the months go on, and we gather more safety data on these vaccines, and then they go for full approval, then we can imagine first quarter of next year, we're going to be in a much more normal situation for a vaccine and that it'll get a proper approval And then the rollout will happen quite quickly, I would imagine, in the first part of next year, Q1 and Q2, as they say. Final question. How many doses have already been made of these vaccines? Again, it's it's one of these numbers that's really hard to, you know, pin down. We know what countries have ordered and what they've been promised. But what we actually don't know is how much has been manufactured uh, as we speak. We do know that countries are certainly expecting uh, to be able to vaccinate tens of millions of people before the end of the year. Before the end of this this year. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So we, we can definitely expect in a handful of countries, maybe a few more, that there will be tens of millions of doses of vaccine available. Natasha Loder, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business... Whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. 
Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. And finally, few ideas in science capture the imagination like that of discovering life beyond Earth. So when in September, a team of scientists led by James Greaves of Cardiff University reported the detection of phosphine gas in the clouds of Venus, the excitement was out of this world. On Earth, phosphine has only two sources, scientists and microbes. Being that there are no chemists on Venus, that left only the tantalizing possibility that it might be a sign of life. It's been suggested that there are possible habitats in the cloud decks of Venus, so somewhere where little life forms could live. But there is another possibility. What if the signal Dr. Greaves and her team suggest is phosphine actually isn't? As the astronomer Carl Sagan liked to say, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The idea that there could be life on another planet is such a big claim. So you're going to expect there to be lots and lots of people trying to check the results. And that's completely normal in astronomy. Alok Jha is our science correspondent. There's a couple of avenues of attack for scientists who've been trying to check the initial results about phosphine. The first is an attempt to replicate the results that they saw using other observations. So the initial observations were made by um, a telescope called ALMA, which is based in uh, Chile. And it looked at the spectrum of light coming from Venus and saw that there was a, a bit of the spectrum missing at about 1.1 millimetres, which is sort of in the radio region. And that's a signifier for phosphine. It shows that phosphine exists in the atmosphere and is absorbing this light. Now, phosphine also absorbs light at other frequencies. And so a different team of scientists looked at some archived data of the spectrum of Venus and looked instead of the radio spectrum, looked at the infrared spectrum, so heat, and tried to find the signal of phosphine in that part of the spectrum and they couldn't find it. And so that's in direct contradiction to the initial finding of phosphine. And you mentioned there's a second contradiction. The second problem was with how the initial team processed the data. When you read these spectra from another planet or from anywhere else in the universe, actually, it's incredibly noisy. So there's a lot of noise that comes along with the actual signal that you're trying to measure. And, the, and the, what you have to do with that data is to process it using various equations that sort of try and take out the noise. And every team of scientists who does this will ha write their own equations for this. And that's fine. That's a completely normal thing to do. So what, what another team did was to write their own noise filtering program and in their version of the noise filtering program they didn't find a significant sort of source of phosphine in the way that the initial discovery found which was troubling but then perhaps more troubling was that the second team took the noise filtering program from the first team uh, that discovered the phosphine in the first place applied that to you know the, the whole spectrum of Venus um, just to see what they could find. And they found lots of signals for molecules in the spectrum of Venus, which they know for a fact aren't there on Venus. So it shows that the, the noise filtering equations perhaps just aren't right. Uh, now, we don't know that the two criticisms are 100% correct either. One of them has been accepted for publication in a scientific journal, that that's the one uh, looking at the infrared data. And the, the study that 
creates its own sort of mathematical equations to sort of filter out the noise. That's just on archive at the moment. So it's a preprint, though it's been submitted to journals as well. So these things should all be taken with a pinch of salt. But they put some pressure on the initial researchers to redo their calculations to explain these anomalies. So this is deeply disappointing, isn't it? No, I don't think it is, actually. I mean... The initial discovery was massive. You know, it's such a big discovery. And no discovery of that magnitude, the idea that there could be life on another planet, should be the preserve of just one scientific paper. You need thousands of researchers doing lots of different analyses in different parts of the spectrum, different equations, all to spiral in on this answer. The initial paper by Dr. Jane Greaves at Cardiff University, I think, was just the starting gun. It's to say, look, we found something really important here. Everyone else now, get your sights onto this and start checking it. Tear down this argument. Find reasons why it's it's wrong. And then they'll improve. And maybe in a few years, it could take a decade before we actually know whether there's phosphine on Venus or not. The initial discovery did not say there is phosphine on Venus. It said, we think there is. We need to go and check this. This is just how science works. And this is just how you build consensus. People argue and eventually the good arguments remain standing. Alec, you're putting a really brave face on this. Maybe the paper should have been more cautious and maybe the media, including The Economist, should have been more reticent before we went out guns blaring on it. Well, it's an interesting case study because we've seen through this year how scientific papers have come out on, on COVID and the SARS-CoV-2 virus um, and how our understanding of it has developed. And sometimes we get things, scientists get things wrong, sometimes they get things right. We're in a much better position of understanding this virus, understanding treatments, understanding spread than we were nine months ago. But people still had ideas nine months ago, which some of which stood up and some of which didn't. In a way, I feel like a stuck record in saying that this is just how science works. It's very, very messy. It's always the case that any finding is provisional until someone else either replicates it multiple times in independent ways with different methods or finds holes in it and tears it down. So any big announcement is the best we know at that time. And so I think it's fine to get interested and excited as long as you mention caveats, and and which we certainly did in the piece that we wrote a few weeks ago, which was that we listed all the reasons why this could be wrong. Um, And the scientists themselves were very, very careful to say, we found this anomaly. We think it's really surprising. We can't find an abiotic process that would produce this. Guys out there, please help us find what's going on. That's that's kind of what they said. They didn't say in the paper that this is a sign of life. That was everyone else being really excited. And okay, it's okay to be excited about this stuff if that allows you then to have these sorts of conversations and debates. And for me, any opportunity to talk to our readers and listeners about how messy the scientific process is, I'm, I'm very happy to take it. Okay, so how will the scientists find a definitive answer? There's going to be lots and lots of people looking at different parts of the spectrum, doing various and different analyses, and they'll debate for uh, a long time. The only way to really settle this 100% is to take more measurements. So that means more time from observatories on Earth so that your statistics get better. But the best, best way is to send a probe. Send a probe with a spectrometer to orbit Venus, take measurements in situ, and then you will pretty certainly get a really, really good answer to what's going on. And something like that is coming up. Yeah, the Indian Space Research Organization is sending a probe to Venus in 2025. Rocket Labs, a private company, is sending something hopefully in the next few years as well. It wants to. I mean, the CEO talks about it. NASA has a couple of missions planned as well, but they won't go anywhere until towards the end of the decade. I mean, Venus has been kind of overlooked by a lot of people because it's been there all the time. We've sent probes in the past, but people are fascinated by Mars and the question of water and life on Mars, and we've kind of ignored Venus. The one thing that the initial paper about phosphine has done is to really reorient people's ideas towards thinking about 
life elsewhere. So there could be more missions coming up. And these are the missions are the only way to really know for sure. Alec, thank you very much. You're very welcome, Ken. And to find out more about the search for alien life, listen to our Babbage episode, Is Anybody Out There? from May 13th, hosted by Alec. And that's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And while you're with us, please spare a moment to leave us a review or rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I can't stress how important that is so that more people can be part of the Babbage community. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.